0: Welcome to Diverse Voices Book Review. I'm Hopeton Hay. My guest today is Sergio Troncoso. We're talking about his latest novel, Nobody's Pilgrim. Sergio is the author of A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son and seven other books. The winner of numerous literary awards, he teaches fiction and nonfiction at the Yale Writers' Workshop, And lives in New York City. And Sergio, welcome back to Diverse Voices Book Review.
1: Thank you so much, Hopton. I'm thrilled to be here. You know, I'm in New York City, but uh, I'm right there with you right now.
0: Well, I was really excited once I started reading the book that you were dabbling in genre fiction because I'm a big reader of crime fiction, big reader of thrillers. Uh And I like the new, different perspective of the characters who are your protagonists, which is, frankly, I'm trying to think if I've read a crime fiction novel or thriller in my entire life where the protagonists were 17-year-old Mexican-Americans, 17-year-old Mexican, Mexican, 17-year-old white girl. I, I don't think I've run across that before. So I have to ask you, because I think of you as a, you are a literary writer. I'm right. a big fan of crime fiction. And so what um, inspired you to take on this type of uh, genre?
1: I mean, in, in my mind, it's still literary fiction, but, but I wrote it in a suspenseful, thriller-like manner. And, and, and I wanted to, you know, show the resiliency of these 17-year-olds. I mean, two of them are orphans. And one of them is an undocumented immigrant. So they are really the, in many ways, the definition of outsiders. They, they don't really belong anywhere except with themselves. Their families, in, in many ways, don't want them. And you know, it's a society, uh, a version of the U.S. Uh, collapsing because of a pandemic. Um, which is Marburg B. And, and it's a novel I wrote before there were 20 cases of COVID uh, in the United States. Donald Trump was still president. And the final, final, final draft was turned in on le- our last leap day, which was February 29th, 2020. And so, I, I, I mean, what I wanted to write was an exciting, I call it my adventure novel. That's literally was the title of it on my file in Word, adventure novel. And I wanted something fast paced, but also, you know, dealing with many of the issues I dealt with before, which is uh, how does the border go beyond the border? How do uh, kids from the border find acceptance or rejection or struggle to become part of this uh, United States? And and I think all of those sort of themes were in my mind as I started writing it. And these these three kids, to me, were very inspiring. To me, were sort of remnants either of myself or people I knew when I was younger, but also of my sons. I have two two sons. And, and, you know, these kids don't give up. They never give up as things are collapsing around them and things are happening to them. And and that kind of resiliency and grit is what I, I was taught by my grandmother and I was taught by my parents. You know, you don't give up. It doesn't matter how dire or how how awful things turn.
0: So let's get uh, what the the easy questions out of the way. And the easy question, of course, is how much of this is based on your life? Because Turi, I believe, lives in a neighborhood similar to the one you grew up in in El Paso, Turi Arturo. Of course, uh, he was orphaned when his mother died in a car accident. His parents died in a car accident. He loves books. And he's fallen in love with Connecticut from a book. You went to right. Yale to get your master's degree, I believe, two master's degree. Yep. You grew up in El Paso. But I bet there's not a whole lot in common, just sort of makes it easier for you, maybe, to, from that jumping off point. Yeah, I, I think it, it,
1: you know it is and it isn't me, of course. I mean, well, the part that's me is the kid that grew up in El Paso and the kid that worked on a chicken farm. I did that. And I think the part that's not me is, of course, I mean, I and I love to read as a kid, so that that part is me, and allows duty to imagine what the world might be like. And of course, his vision of Connecticut, which comes from books, is very much a very idealistic, almost pastoral. Somebody described the pastoral view at the very first pages of the book. He just is reading a book on this beautiful green. Place full of rivers and very different from the desert, from you know wh- wh- where he's at, and he imagines this is kind of where I want to be or when I, where I want to go, and and as the novel, you know, progresses, getting to the real Connecticut is a different story. It is almost going from idealism to realism, from you know having to struggle to to make your place. In in a place like Connecticut, uh, when you've imagined it before you've ever been there, to be um, to be this Id- idyllic place, but then to actually fight your way to survive and to um, exist there, um, it it's a gauntlet. And and I think that's that's kind of what I was thinking about as I wrote the novel. And so the parts of it that are me are that. Tutti, the reader, and imagination propels him to imagine things, even if they're wrong, because I think in some ways study is very idealistic about, about what he thinks about Connecticut. Um, so, so that part of it is true. And, and starting on the border, you know, I, always, I often start with stages, you know, like Isleta or El Paso or, or a chicken chicken farm, that are familiar to me because I know those places. I've been to those places and I have a a very good memory. But but other than that, everything is out of my imagination, out of creation, out of research, out of uh, studying how narcos uh, function in this country. And and there's, by the way, an interesting question. I mean, I don't want to preempt your questions, but um, you might want to ask me about uh, this blonde, blue-eyed narco uh, John Broadus Dunbar, which, which, by the way, a white editor wanted to take out. And I said, no, don't do that. And there was a very specific reason I, I wanted to have him in there.
0: So there's one other thing I bet you have in common with uh, Turi, a love of Mark Twain's work. And then that, that I said, how much of this Huckleberry Finn uh-huh. sort of inspired a little bit of this story? Well,
1: I think, I mean, I do love Mark Twain. And I love both Tom Sawyer and, and, and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And I think the difference was, I mean, the uh, allusions to it are that, you know, Tutti is befriending Arnulfo, who's an undocumented immigrant. And so society um, does not really approve of or and wants to get rid of uh, somebody like Arnulfo. And so that that sort of somewhat parallelism, although you know it's not the same being an undocumented immigrant and being a slave, but you know, uh, Huck befriends Jim. And and with, and the more he the more the friendship is deepened, the the, the more it called into question Huck's uh, view of society. Uh, what he should do for himself. And so something similar is happening with, um, you know, with Turi, as he is put in danger. And he's even at a certain point toward the end of the novel, I won't give it away, but he's faced with talking to a a police officer about what happened to Arnulfo. You know, he won't turn away from his friends. His friendship becomes more important than what society is telling him to do, even when society is telling him to cut and run, leave this guy, forget him. And, and, and Tuti's saying, no, he's my friend and it doesn't matter what society thinks of. Society is wrong. You know, friendship trumps, uh, <laughs> to use uh, uh, that verb, um, trumps, you know, what, uh, what society is thinking he should do. And I think that in that sense, there is that connection to 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 Mark Twain and the sense of adventure. You know, I wanted an adventure. There is no Mississippi River they're traveling down. The river is the highway. Uh, the river is the road that they create on their own. And uh, and this stolen blue pickup truck that people evil people are after. Um, and so so the, you know, there's some general allusions, but. But really, it's not patterned or it's not supposed to be a, a mirror to the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I think some of these general questions that Twain dealt with in his work are certainly questions that I care about.
0: Well, the challenges that Tori faces growing up home and just the, the first thing that came to my mind is the hard knock life, you know, in terms of how he's treated by his aunt, her, his aunt's husband, his cousin. He's a nerd. Right, and they they totally disrespect him for actually loving to read books, and it's a it's a really really tough situation that he's uh, learning how to survive in. Right. No, and that, I think that's an important you know point you make because
1: y- y- you know I mean that's how I was as a kid in a very poor neighborhood, and let me just say not everyone in that neighborhood appreciated books. <laughs> or appreciated <laughs> writing. I mean, some, some people remarkably did, right? I mean, it wasn't just me. There was there were other people who were, who were readers. But, it, but being a nerd was something you sort of hid and you're sort of soft and, you know, you're not a baseball player or a football player. You can't beat the crap out of somebody and you're not carrying a knife in your boot pocket like some of the cholos I knew in my neighborhood. So, you know, I would get beat up by... All of them, frankly, if if uh, if we came to a tussle, which of, of course, fortunately, I was smart enough to avoid. But 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 reading and intellectualism and being a nerd is uh, even still, um, you know, it becomes, makes you a little bit of a pariah, a little bit, you know, in this country. As you know, I mean, football and and athletics and all of that is uh, is often are the 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 heroes that we have, you know, in our culture and, and, you know, somebody who loves to read books uh, that seems to be in the decline, even people reading are, uh, are, are less and less every year. So, so I think, you know, this challenge that that duty faces is, is in part because of his mind, his mind takes him where uh, he, he hasn't been like a place like Connecticut. And I think that's one of the things I'm trying to say that reading does open your mind and and even propel you to things to do things that you may not even imagine and may may be wrong. When he sets out in the stolen truck, you know, in the truck that they later steal across country, he doesn't really know where he's going. But but he hopes, he thinks because of his mind and his reading that uh, it will take him to a good place. And whether that's right or wrong, that's, that's sort of a, something to debate. But I think it's imagination, the power of imagination caused by reading that that is at work here.
0: And Arnolfo has has dreams too. He wants to, they both, you know, they're tired of working at the poultry farm, of course. Touré wants to leave because his family wants to send him back right. to Mexico, even though right. he's an American citizen. Onofa wants to leave because he wants to lead a better life than he's currently living. So he he has dreams. And despite their differences, they come together, they get on the highway, and they end up in Steelville, Missouri. Right. (laughs) Or a rural town and a young people. and, uh, And he's lucky enough to meet the one person that actually has an open mind, a right. beautiful 17-year-old white girl. Right, poor white girl. Poor white girl.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, she's, she's poor. And in and, and the end, that's the thing about their meeting, um, that that's how they connect. The, you know, if, if Molly, the 17-year-old, uh, blonde, blue-eyed, kind of scruffy, uh, athletic, uh, white girl behind the counter of a tackle shop, basically. If, you know, he notes, Tutti and Arnulfo both know she's stronger than they are. Um, you know, she's more physically able than they are. So there's no sort of physical intimidation. But if Judy, and there's a point in the novel where he imagines her at Isleta High School, if she had been at Isleta High School, everyone at Isleta, which is like 98% Mexican or Mexican American, would have assumed oh this is a poor rich girl from el paso somehow ended up in this border high school but of course that's not who she is she's this she's this uh, poor white girl who's very athletic and hates her small town and wants to leave it and and i think she is you know she's sort of feeling them out too she she's in a way not necessarily using them but she sort of thinks this is my way out they're 17 they don't seem like bad guys you know and after she hikes with them she feels I can trust these guys and and that's the other thing I wanted to say in the novel is that because I see this in young people all the time they trust each other in a way that us old guys don't do anymore you know we lose that sense of, of like let's just go on an adventure let's just take a ride here somewhere and, and sometimes that's crazy, right? It gets you in trouble as a 17-year-old, but also sometimes that creates these lifelong friendships, these, these connections. You just sort of take a leap of faith. And, and I think when you're young, you do that all the time, which is what makes young sort of being young exciting, but also risky. And, um, and, and by the way, some people have asked me, uh, especially people from Missouri, have said, well, how did you get... Even the cadence of the, her language so well, and how did you know Missouri teenager? And I said, Well, people don't know that for about nine years I taught in independence, Missouri. And so I knew tons of mollies and you know, male and female versions of Molly, you know, poor white kids, and not just white, by the way, you know, poor African American. Kids from Missouri, from rural Missouri, from the middle of nowhere Missouri, who were interested in writing, who were interested in becoming more of themselves. And, and I connected with them because I had a working class background from Isleta, from the border. You know, these, these were kids that in Isleta would have just been at a higher echelon simply because of their race and their looks. but But in reality, they weren't. In reality, they were as poor as I was, you know, when when I when
0: I was a kid. Now, we've talked about the protagonists. Uh, Let's stick to your experience in Missouri. Molly's brother, Jim. Right. Very different from Molly. She lives with Jim and his um, common law wife. They have a baby. The common law wife hates Molly. And Jim resents his Hispanic supervisor. He resents his sister ran away with, uh, as he would say, Mexicans. <laughs> He's this boiling resentment and right. almost this, this, this uh, chip on his shoulder. That's a, that's a character we all kind of fear these days. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and, and you know, Molly's brother, Jim,
0: is also obsessed, as you know, with,
1: with the Internet obsessed, you know, with looking at things online and connecting with these conservative fringe groups. Exactly. So, so he is, and I also wanted to make a commentary about how this is affecting places like Steelville, where there's basically no local paper, there's no, no meaningful local journalism. And so what they are getting in terms of what's happening in the world is this self-selection into sort of conservative abysses of, of, of sort of racism and blaming people and, you know, us versus them. And that's what Jim is sort of in, you know, trapped in. Um, he That's his escape. His escape is sort of a very narrow and and dark abyss. And, and I think uh, it, it's also, you know, what happened to Jim. I don't want to, you know, I, I always try to make my characters even the ones that are bad, kind of a little human. So even Jim, you know, he's been forced to be the adult because the parents died in a, you know, in, in you know, uh, when, when they were young. And so he resents that, that fact. He resents a little bit, the fact that, uh, you know, he's, he's burdened now with a child and with this common law wife, whom he loves, but, it's, it's all on him. He has to, uh, you know, he has to sh- shoulder that burden of working construction jobs. And, of course, what does he do? He blames Mexicans. He blames other people for his predicament, in part. But maybe he's just sort of trying to find blame for, you know, being from nowhere Missouri and, and trying to find his place and his economic foothold. And he's just, you know, using the Internet to find some sort of racial blame um you know, somewhere.
0: can I quote Molly? Absolutely. So Molly says, but in Steelville, I know so many who hate all Mexicans, Vietnamese, Muslims, anybody who's not them, anybody who doesn't look like them, anybody who works harder than they do, it doesn't matter what you say to them, they won't change. They won't listen. So Molly understands the resentment within her community. Oh, she does. She no, and she she knows that
1: there is real hate hidden in these in some some of these rural areas, and 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 it's it's sort of a like a cruise missile without a target, looking for some sort of target. This is the people who we're going to blame, um, somebody who looks different from us, um, and 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 I think Molly definitely sees it. Uh, I think Molly doesn't buy into it. Um, you know why she doesn't buy into it. It could just be, you know, she, she, I think her connection with her father is key, you know, to, to her. Uh, her father grew up in New Mexico, had a lot of friends who were, um, you know, who were Latino. And, and it talks about, had talked about them. Um, and so, so it's perhaps her connection with her father that opened her up a little bit to not be so, um, you know, so
0: hateful. So let's talk about some more of the, um, well, the real antagonists. Uh, I'm going to start off with one of the big bads. El, he, el Hijo de Rueda, right. a brutal, right. brutal enforcer, if I may say, who can even survive what us normal folks would consider a tra- traumatic traumatic accident trauma right right it was a very very scary character what was your inspiration for the brutal enforcer well well first of all you know
1: um i mean i edited a book called our lost borders essays on life amid the narco violence and in that book there are many mexican writers who were writing about the narco wars and, and and in fact one of them Diego Osorno who became my friend he would embed himself with the narcos and write these riveting first person accounts of what he was seeing when in these little towns in Mexico when they were fighting each other when there was some brutality happening in town and this stuff is just oh my gosh it takes your breath away so a lot of it was that sort of inspiration, you know, with what I learned reading and editing that book, Our Lost Borders, Essays on Life Amid the Narco-Violence, but also, you know, things like mixing it up with somebody like the Terminator, like El Hijo de Huerta, <laughs> is somebody like he yes. is not going to stop. He's not going to stop until he gets to his target. And it's sort of a, a code. And he's also has, I tried to make, Make him a full-bodied human. He likes dolls. He likes dolls. Yeah. <laughs> he well, he connects.
0: He connects. He, con- <laughs> he
1: connects with dolls and with this, you know, with his lost childhood, with his the brutality that he faced as a, you know, as a um, as a child, uh, you know the probably the the his bad family life. I mean, and that is one the one thing having known a lot of well, not a lot, but a few violent people in my in my hometown, uh, in Isleta. You know, people who were cholos, people who were in gangs. Um, you know, I lived in Barraca. Uh, even the worst ones, even the ones who would knife other people. You know, you knew, if you knew him, if you talked to them, they had had a really difficult family life. Uh, you know, maybe... You know, or they, you know, their, wa- their fathers would batter them, or, you know, something, it, it wasn't just sort of natural that they became who they became. They, they really had a, a difficult family And El Hijo de Huerta is no different. I, of course, he's much more on the bad side. He's going after them, he's, he's going to find them, he will stop at nothing to find them. And, um, and, and so that's what I was thinking. You know, they, there are all these different evils in the novel from the pandemic to El Hijo de Huerta to other people, the threesome sent after, after Molly and, uh, and Turi and Arnulfo. And, and, and you know, these, these three kids have to find their way out or get help or be lucky. And sometimes it's one of, you know, it's a mix of all three of them. Uh, it's not just grit. It's sometimes luck. And it's sometimes
0: with a little help from other people. How did you uh, master the pacing of the novel? <laughs> because I, I will tell you, as I was reading it, and, and, you know, once you invest yourself in your protagonists, you start worrying about them. Uh, when will the people catch up with them? How will they get away? How did you manage the pacing of the novel?
1: Well, through a lot of hard work and through a lot of rewriting, I, you know, I, I had written you know, versions of the novel. And then I would read it out loud and I would think about like, what's the reader or a reader, uh, what will he or she be thinking at this moment? How can I get them to keep, you know, that attraction, that seduction that you're trying to create in the, in the work to keep the reader moving forward, to keep the reader excited about what may or may not happen and yet not tip him or her off, as to what will happen so you know because that ride is so important it's what you relish right if you read a novel and it takes you on this great ride and it surprises you of what you think is going to happen and then so sometimes i would put in things in chapters that would purposely lead the reader astray to to take them one way where i'm going to really going to be taking them another way and a lot of this is just through rewriting editing, taking things out. Uh, you know, I have entire chapters on the accident of Duty's parents and even Molly's, you know, and I took them out because I said, no, 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 this is, this is stopping the pacing. This is slowing it down. We don't really want backstory here, for example. So, so a lot of it is you first write what you think is going to be the novel and then you start taking things out and maybe putting things in and, and just shaping it with the rewriting process. And that's how I did it. Uh, I, I kept thinking, I want this to be an adventure. I want this to be exciting. But I also want it to be about important themes, like taking the border beyond the border, about friendship and connecting with people in an immediate way. Like, you know, let's just say you and I, you know, meet each other. And, you know, we have a drink. And then suddenly... You know, something happened and we are on an adventure and we didn't expect it. And I sort of don't know you that well and you don't know me that well, but you have to trust each other or you're both going to end up in dire straits.
0: Molly and Turi, that is a slow burn romance, not a fast romance, not the movie romance, not the TV romance where, frankly, they, they move so quickly. Right. This is a slow, slow burn with a little jealousy with (laughs) arnulf right right well you know i mean i i felt that yes they
1: could connect you know in my mind when i really know my characters very well and i've done pages and pages of everything from physical descriptions to moral descriptions to to um secrets that they may not tell each other or tell themselves and and they start living in my mind i really start feel i started feeling like Tudie and Molly, because of their love of reading and their love of of, of, of wordplay, that's how they're going to connect. They're going to start connecting. The more trials they have together, the more they spend time in that truck, you know, escaping these evil people with Arnulfo, the more they will kind of see that they're actually of similar minds. They're not the same. They're they're very different people, um, and and at a certain point. Um, you know, one of them is falling apart and the other one is pulling them out. And, and I always envision all three of them in sort of a life raft situation in which no one is always the hero. You know, even the hero at a certain point in the novel gets beaten down and, and is about to give up. And then she might have to be pulled by one of the other ones that steps forward and, and, and takes control. And so 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 that's what, you know and I wanted I didn't want something cheesy or something like you know they fall in, they are attracted to each other they like each other but you know it's sort of a a little cagey they're being a little cagey around each other and just trying to see who is this person that I'm riding in this truck with that now I found out it's stolen and uh, and can I trust this person can I you know and and little little tidbits like for example duty, telling Molly, tell your brother where you are, you know, don't, don't hide that from him. You know, he's going to be worried. You know, these things that Turi doesn't have to say to her, but he does encourage Molly to trust him, to say, you know, this is not a bad guy. This is a good guy. This is the guy trying to, 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 to look out for my, uh, you know, for, for my behalf. And, and I, and, you know, and, 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 and all sorts of things that happened with Molly as well that encouraged Duty as well to, to trust her more deeply. And so this trust is this slow burn of the relationship.
0: Is there a little bit of capitalism driving the plot of the novel in terms of <laughs> the desire to have a pandemic? Well, what do you mean? By capitalism in the pandemic, a couple of well, people want to take advantage of that. Oh, absolutely! On the stock
1: market. <laughs> oh, absolutely! No, no. I mean, I, I actually,
0: um,
1: I believe that, um, and on, in capitalism, on several fronts. For example, you know the 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 blonde, blue eyed narco.
0: Oh, he's the, making some money in the stock market. He's making a he?
1: lot of money in the stock market and in the drug drug business. Right, and. Uh, you know, and that, I think is, that's something that I think was very important because this is what he's driven by. He's, this is his American dream. And, and also, you know, there are people who like to create chaos to, and to take advantage of the chaos. And, and, and I think people in the stock market and other places, not just in finance, do this all the time to introduce the problem that they then have to solve or, or will have the solution to, or they will not be hurt by it, but they will be able to take advantage of. it. And, and, and I think people do this already in, in finance all the time. And by the way, I used to be an economist. So I actually know the stock market very well uh, and invest regularly in it. So I, I know, you know, when, you know, when, um, when people do that on purpose, you know, when you're shortening, shorting a stock, and you're purposely, you know, you can short a country. You could purposely try to introduce chaos into the country, and then buy up all the great real estate, and then somehow escape the chaos. And you're going to come out, you know, like roses.
0: On the Unless other you're side. the Hunt brothers.
1: Unless you're the Hunt brothers, who, right?
0: who crashed and burned when trying to corner the silver market, I believe. Right. But it's it's about greed. It's all about greed. Exactly. It's about, Right? It's
1: about people trying to take advantage of other people, and, uh, and, and, and you know, that's, that's part of the American you know, dream nightmare, so to speak.
0: I think this novel, and I really enjoyed reading this novel, by the way, I think this novel actually would have a lot of appeal to 16 and 17-year-olds.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you say that. I mean, it's, it is adult fiction, uh, but the interesting thing is, of course, is that Lee Lowe primarily publishes children's literature. But, but this is their first foray. You know, they've already published maybe two or three books in adult fiction and nonfiction. So you know, they, I, I do think a 17, 18 year old would have no problem reading this book. Uh, it is not any more violent than you know, Breaking Bad or some of the many of the stuff you see on TV. So, um, in fact, I would, I would say Breaking Bad is a lot more violent <laughs> or No Country for Old Men than what happens in this novel
0: Uh, wait wait stop (laughs) that's what you no country for old men that character that that same relentless character absolutely absolutely gosh right 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 now the the guy
1: who who hits people with uh with that with with, that uh nail gun uh, nail gun right exactly yeah no i mean he was part of part of the mix too i was thinking sort of a Terminator and, and the you know, host, I think his name is, the actor is Jose Bardem or something. Yes,
0: that's, yes, that's he's married to Penelope Cruz. Right. So I was thinking
1: of, of that sort of relentlessness as well as uh, sort of a version of, of sort of the Terminator as well, um, going after these kids.
0: Uh, so you know, I, I, uh, I got to ask you this. So when do I start the writing campaign for the sequel to this novel?
1: Well <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe now. I, I thought about writing a sequel. I did write some notes for a sequel. You, you and can't I, you, hit, you,
0: I, I <laughs> And then I left it. I left. It. Got, all right, so give me the publisher's name. I'll send no, I I want, I want to read the second novel in this. I really, really? do. I, I, <laughs> I want to see what happens to Molly well, right, Tudor. Write to, right to
1: Leon Lowe. I mean I and, and I, would, I don't know if I would necessarily publish it with them. I mean, I like them. They have, I have, I've had no trouble with them. But, but I did think about a sequel. Uh, and then I just got involved in so many other projects. And, and I did start writing notes about a sequel. Uh, I do, in my mind, think the story could, could, you know, could, could have legs. Uh, and I do have an idea about what would happen. And it would still continue on this dystopian theme of America sort of somewhat falling apart. And these two, you know, these kids trying to piece their lives together and create a new version of this country, starting with themselves and and the and the people around them who survived. So so I do have an idea, and maybe, you know, I mean the the other thing is I, I feel like it has to germinate enough in my mind to and so that I don't feel I'm forcing it like if I'm being for you know if I feel like oh I just have to get it out because you know they're going to pay me tons of money or something I just don't feel that's the right way to do it it has to be almost like a, a natural process of storytelling in my head but I, I do have it in my head I thought about it uh, and I don't have everything worked out in a, in a sequel but I Certainly, do have the first third or so of the beginning, Um, but I, you know, that'd be great. Tell them, tell them to hand
0: me over a big check, and I'll start working the sequel right away. I know one publisher, and I Uh will (laughs) send the publisher of Akashic (laughs) Books, Johnny. Oh, right. I I love Johnny Temple, and uh, so I will reach out to him. But I, I send him the novel. Honestly, no, because for me,
1: for me, that would have been my dream publisher. Honestly, uh, a conscious yes. book, Johnny Temple. Absolutely. Because I, I not only have I met him, I love his books. And originally, when Cinco because what happened with my novel, of course, it was written before COVID was, there were 20 cases of COVID in, in the country. Cinco Puntos and the, the two principals of Cinco Puntos, Bobby and Lee Bird, decided to retire. And they told me, we're going to sell Cinco Puntos to a New York publisher, I thought, oh, it's Akashic. I was so thrilled because I think my novel would fit perfectly with them. And of course, it wasn't Akashic, it was Lee and Lowe. So, but I think Akashic is in some ways, you know, a better fit for, for, for the sequel.
0: Uh, I, I, I don't want to end this interview without talking about Charlie Brown. <laughs> And your shout out to Charlie Brown. And um, I grew up watching the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown Christmas, Lucy. He's always trying to kick the football and always missing. Talk a little bit about uh, your, your. Uh, obviously, I think you must be a fan of Charlie Brown. I am.
1: And, and I think when I was a kid in on the border in Isleta, in El Paso, and I would see those specials like the Charlie Brown uh, Christmas and the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. There was all, I mean, I always felt there was a real sadness to them because Charlie Brown is that, you know, if he doesn't really, he's an outsider. He sort of doesn't belong. But, but also there was sort of a gentleness and a connection with leaves and, and trees and things that uh, the geography of, of the Peanuts world always attracted me. You know, it, I always thought, you know that that might be interesting. you know and I imagine oh that's New England is sure, that's maybe you know some somewhere where it's a lot greener than here and 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 that's sort of what I imagined um, you know in in sort of a Charlie Brown Christmas and uh, and Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. And, and I like the fact that he was an outsider that he didn't really fit in. And that he lived his life you know you you know by the way in that in in those cartoons the adults are basically non-existent right right you know it's just the world that these peanut characters are creating uh you know amongst themselves i mean i didn't want to create a like a narco charlie brown uh because these guys are 17 year olds they're a lot older and the peanut characters, but but it is the world that that Turi Mali Mali and and Arnulfo creating that matters. The world outside of of adults is really usually the problem. The problem is what they're trying to create within, the, you know, between themselves, amongst themselves.
0: Sergio Trancoso, author of Nobody's Pilgrim, absolutely. Love the book. I I do really want to see a sequel. (laughs) I want to read a sequel. Thank you so much for being a guest on Diverse Voices Book Review. Thank you. I love talking to you. And anytime you want to do anything, let's do it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Diverse Voices Book Review. I'm Hopeton Hay, host and producer. The theme music is provided by Wright Productions. You can follow the show on social media under Facebook and Instagram, it's Diverse Voices Book Review or Twitter under at Diverse Books Hey.